Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I'm joined today by uh, one of our esteemed colleagues in the Antitrust Group, uh, Darcy Hollandoni. How you doing, Darcy? I'm great, Jay. Good morning. Uh, I don't believe we've done a podcast before, have we? No, I think this is our maiden. Okay, this is our maiden voyage. Well, uh, why don't we? Uh, uh, t- why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, Darcy? Well, I am originally from Columbus, Ohio, which is now where I practice. Um, I've lived kind of all over the place. I went to undergrad at Princeton University in New Jersey, uh, law school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and my husband is um, currently serving in Afghanistan as a JAG officer. Wow. Okay. So two lawyers, huh? You make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, talking about a long-distance relationship. Well, that's wonderful, wonderful. Um, uh, We look forward to him coming back safe and sound. Um, and we applaud his uh, his service. Um, so uh, Darcy um, is uh, one of our uh, one of our litigation members and has been working um, for several years already on a lot of our um, uh, antitrust class actions. And she has been following uh, this case, um, North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners versus the Federal Trade Commission, um, where oral argument was just heard. What about two weeks ago? About two weeks ago, in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so so the 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 this case is a little bit um, odd. It, it it actually deals with an exemption to the antitrust laws, and um, it really helps to um, essentially define what um, the parameters of the state action doctrine, as it's called, and um, and its import for state licensing boards. So. Uh, first, let's first understand what is the exemption all about and what is state action doctrine, uh, Darcy? Well, in general, the state action doctrine exempts state actors and in some circumstances non-state actors from the antitrust laws and allows states to engage in anti-competitive behavior in order to pursue their objectives. So, now, when, when, when you say non-state actors, you mean like just private people? Well, in, in some certain circumstances, private actors, but when I'm saying non-state actors, I'm generally referring to state agencies or municipalities is how the case law has ah, defined okay. it. Uh, the state, the doctrine was originally developed in a 1943 U.S. Supreme Court case called Parker versus Brown, where the court found that activities of a state are exempt from antitrust liability when, quote, the state itself exercises its legislative authority in making the regulation and in prescribing the condition of its application. So the court found that because the Sherman Act did not expressly prohibit a state from regulating its own economy, the state was exempted from, or action by the state was exempted from the antitrust laws. Okay, now, so if the state itself acts, I'm sorry, so if the state itself acts, there's, there's no problem. The state can do whatever the heck it wants and can be as anti-competitive as it wants, right? It, yes, and by the state I mean generally the legislature or, or the courts. Okay. Are there, are there more actors? <laughs> okay. Well, well, the well the state the doctrine has been defined has been further defined since then, and there are several different additional categories in addition to just the uh, in addition to just you know, the the category of the state. So non-state actors, as I mentioned before, such as state acts uh, such as state agencies or municipalities, are also immune from the antitrust laws if the actor is pursuing. Uh, or is acting pursuant to a clearly expressed state policy to displace competition. So it has to have been a policy that was articulated by the state in order for the a state agency, for example, to be taking an action that is anti-competitive. And finally, you know, as we mentioned earlier, 
under certain circumstances, private actors can also be immune when acting pursuant to a state policy, but only in the circumstances, only under, you know, only if they're specifically um, being actively supervised by the state itself in the questioned anti-competitive conduct. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so it, it sounds like, you know, if the if the governor or the state legislature or the Supreme Court of the state does something, they don't need anything else. They can do pretty much whatever they want, and if it's anti-competitive, so be it. They, they, they have immunity, right? Yes, principles of federalism give deference to a state's sovereign choices regarding its own decisions. I love it. We're bringing in constitutional law into antitrust. I mean, this is great. Um, okay, so now, <laughs> so now you have um, essentially things below the state, such as, as you said, municipalities and state agencies, and they've got to, um, if they're going to hope to achieve any sort of antitrust immunity, they've got to work um, pursuant to some state policy to displace competition. Now, I believe a couple of years ago uh, there was a there was a uh, Supreme Court case called Phoebe Putney. And that had to do with whether a certain merger of, uh, of hospitals that were, that were owned by, uh, you know, a municipal health authority, um, uh, whether that, uh, essentially was immune from the antitrust laws. And C.B. Putney put a little bit more teeth and a little bit more, um, definition around what constitutes clear articulation of state policy to displace competition. This case, however, deals with something a little bit different. This case deals with the other prong, that if you are a private actor or a, a you know, um, you know, you have to also prove that not only is there a state policy that displays competition, but that you are also acting pursuant to active state supervision. And that's where this case comes in, right? Yep, exactly. Okay, why don't you tell us a little bit about the case? Well, as you just said, the case really centers around whether, in this circumstance, the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners um, is protected by the state action doctrine as you just defined it. Um, the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners, which I'll refer to as, as the board for simplicity's sake, um, is created by state statute in North Carolina in order to regulate the practice of dentistry within the state. Um, it consists of six dentists, one licensed dental hygienist and one consumer, all of which are elected by the board's membership, which is licensed dentists. Mm. And around 2003, a group of non-dentists, or I shouldn't say a group, just non-dentists generally, began offering teeth whitening services, um, sometimes in kiosks and malls, mostly in spas and salons across the state. And typically, mm. these non-dentists could and did offer these services at significantly discounted rates from those charged by dentists. Um, as well and I'll bet you the dentists didn't like that. They did not. The board received a number of complaints from its membership, which were generally related not so much to the fact that um, these services were harmful to the public, but to the fact that these um, that these non-dentist teeth whiteners were charging much lower prices than the dentist could. So, in so response, the harm was not to the consumer. The harm was to the pocketbook of the dentists. Exactly. And in response, the board took the position that these that these non um, that these teeth whitening services being performed by non dentists were constituted the unlicensed practice of dentistry, and so they mm. sent out a series of cease and desist letters to the non dentist teeth whitening providers, but also to manufacturers of teeth whitening products, distributors of the teeth whitening products, and even to the North Carolina Board of Cosmetic Art Examiners, which regulates spas and salons, saying you need to stop. You shouldn't be doing this. This is the unlicensed practice of dentistry. 
And as a result, in 2010, the FTC filed an administrative complaint against the board on the grounds that these um, that the board's actions in sending out these letters constituted an anti-competitive conspiracy, essentially that the dentists were trying to restrict who could provide certain services for their own economic self-interest rather than the interest of the public. Ah, okay. Well, and is there, I guess I, there's no real debate or, or it's not really germane as to why they were sending it out or not, right? I mean, whether whether they were sending it out to protect consumer welfare and, you know, safety, or whether they were doing it to protect their own pocketbook was really not germane or is not germane to the court's decision, right? Um, not not particularly, no. Okay, so, so we understand the FTC is basically saying, look, you, you're trying to get rid of competition, and we don't like that, and we think that's a violation of Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair methods of competition. Now, uh, the board is asserting that it is um, its conduct is immunized under the state action doctrine. So w- what exactly is the board's defense? They're basically saying that there is a clearly articulated state policy, that they're acting pursuant to state law to protect the health and welfare of, of the population of North Carolina and regulating dentistry, and that they are sufficiently regulated by the state, and that therefore they fall within the protections of the state action, action doctrine. Uh-huh. And so if they're a state agency and they're um, operating pursuant to a clearly articulated state policy to displace competition, then they don't need active state supervision, right? Exactly. Okay. Now, and I believe it's pretty clear there is no active state supervision in this in this matter, right? At least for for purposes of the oral argument. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and obviously the FTC, you know, believes that they are not a state agency. Is that the is that the point? The FTC essentially says that they are private actors who are not being, who are, as you said, not being actively supervised by the state. Gotcha. And that's mainly because they are, in fact, competitors of these teeth whitening service providers and that they're acting in their own self-interest. They're not really acting pursuant to some state fiduciary duties and therefore they should be more likened to private parties than they are to some objective, um, you know, sort of disinterested state agency, right? Exactly. They're, they're acting more as market participants than as true actors of the state. Interesting. It's a kind of fine line here. Now, the board says, no, no, we are a state agency. Did the board sort of, you know, explain why they believe they're more, of a, they're more like a state agency than they are a private actor? Well, according to their, their general argument goes that they, um, you know, they were still under an obligation to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act. They had to comply with open records rules, ethics laws. Um, they had to take to swear an oath to um, mm-hmm. an oath of office when they were sworn in, and they were subject to judicial review. And because those qual- because those standards were met, they then fall within the um, they were acting more as um, representatives of the state than as market participants because they were obligated to act in the best interest of the state. Interesting, interesting. So essentially, the the state sort of deputized these private actors, and the question was whether that deputization, if that's even a word, um, really made them more akin to a state actor or left them as more a private actor market participant. And that's, that's what the Supreme Court has to wrestle with now, right? Exactly. Whether, it's okay. more, whether they're acting more as a private party or as really as a prototypical state actor. Interesting. Okay, so, so there was a, a, you know, a pretty, pretty active bench at the oral argument. What, what were the concerns on sort of both sides of the issues that we can divine from the justices' questions? 
Well, on the one hand, the justices were very concerned about the fact that the board, although it was created by state statute, was essentially a group of dentists who could, who were obviously market participants, who could define the practice of dentistry in order to suit their economic self-interest. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, the justices were also concerned about allowing um, the, the justice wanted to make sure that professional experts were the ones who had the freedom to regulate their own profession. So, for example, Justices Breyer and Scalia were both very concerned and made a point of saying that they wanted neurologists regulating the practice of neurology, not government bureaucrats. So this goes beyond just um, just dentists regulating dentists. This applies right. to, um, to state licensing generally. i got to tell you, I'm with them on that. I want neurologists regulating neurologists, too. I agree. Uh, I agree. But I think the question uh, is where, where to draw that line when you have right. the whole, you know, who, where you have some level of self-regulation. Yeah, and I guess it's interesting is, you know, we say we want neurologists regulating neurologists, but a little bit it depends on, you know, what exactly the regulation is all about. If, if, it's, if, we're, if we're talking about how to perform a certain procedure or whether certain procedures you know, it should be done, you know, through Avenue X or Avenue Y, I think, you know, I think everybody would want a neurologist to be making that decision, whereas if it has to do more with the uh, economics of a neurology practice, maybe we're not so inclined to give them that kind of deference. Um, I agree, um, and I think the, the question here was that, you know, the dentists were in a position where they were saying, they they got to say, well, Who's practicing dentistry and who and who and who wasn't? And they were arguably doing that in a way that um, benefited their pocketbook rather than the public interest. Yeah, a- absolutely interesting. This will be um, somewhat telling. So, what, what are the what are the? I, know, I guess the, the the universe is open for the Supreme Court and, and you know how to decide this case, like every other case that can decide it. I guess fairly narrowly or more expansively. And I think Justice Sotomayor. Um, seemed inclined to try to articulate a rule that will, you know, govern conduct hereafter and not try to limit it to the particular facts of this case. But, you know, why don't you kind of summarize for us what are the potential options that the Supreme Court has and that we think they, uh, they may come up with? Well, exactly like you just said. I mean, the court could on one end of the spectrum could hold that, you know, actions by all state agencies are exempt so long as a clearly articulated anti-competitive policy justifies the state's action. On the other end, they can hold that the state agency action is exempt only if part of the state government is actively supervising the agency's action. But what I think is more likely, based on the questioning, is that the court is going to try to articulate some appropriate test that would exempt the purported state actions from um, from the antitrust law. And I think that was what they were struggling to um, – I think that was the challenge that they were grappling with at oral argument. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's – you know, the immunization here is only after there's already a clear articulation of state policy to displace competition. I'm, and once you have that, the question is, do we need this sort of other level of bureaucracy um, um, to fulfill the act of state supervision requirement? And, you know, that there is a certain level of hassle and, and, and bureaucracy that just not everybody is prepared to, to engage in. Um, and it made, but it ultimately may depend on the type of regulation you're seeking to, or the type of conduct you're seeking to regulate. And you know, if it's clearly within certain bounds, they may say you don't need active supervision. And if it's other issues, they may say you do need. And, and it'll be interesting to see sort of how they, how they, how they slice it up. But I mean, this can apply to pretty much anyone, right? 
I mean, any yeah, well, that's important. Yeah, I mean, like we like we were talking about before. I mean, the, you know, this is obviously I think it's going to be a particular interest to to medical licensing boards because I think that's where it hits closest to home and mm-hmm. uh, where obviously the public has a great deal of concern. As we were saying, you know, we, we want neurologists regulating neurologists, but <laughs> you know, the different states have have licensing um, requirements for all different professions, from interior designers to floral designers to hair braiders. Eye brow threaders, fortune tellers—you name it. Um, the states are kind of all over the place on this. this yeah, we got to regulate. We got to regulate that fortune telling. I mean, it's getting out of hand. Um, Absolutely. So you've got. So this could potentially have widespread. You know, whatever the test is that is articulated by the court could potentially have a widespread impact on how uh, state licensing is conducted generally. Right, and and the justices seem to be appropriately concerned about um, giving a carte blanche to an industry to self-regulate, and if there's no active state supervision, um, possibly engaging in conduct that maybe the legislature never envisioned when they, in, you know, when they enunciated or enacted the statute that's, that, you know, serves as the clear articulation to displace um, competition. But I guess we'll, we'll have to see. That's probably the, the decision will come somewhere in the spring. Um, presumably, and um, until then, we're just going to have to see. Um, we'll have to wait and see, right? With bated breath. <laughs> well, uh, I hope everyone here has enjoyed our discussion of the state action doctrine. Um, I'm Jay Levine. I'm your host of Antitrust Law Source. You can find us on antitrustlawsource.com. You can find me personally at Twitter at J-J-A-Y-L Levine, that's J-E-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E, or you can email me at the letter J-L-E-V-I-N-E at porterite.com, and you can reach Darcy at? At uh, D-J-A-L-A-N-D-O-N-I <laughs> at porterite.com. You know, I feel so much better that, you know, I mess up your name sometimes, but even you do. Um, Everybody it's messes up my name, including me. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking with you, uh, Darcy, and look for us at future podcasts. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Jay. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.